Thank you for joining us again. And today we are talking about what happens in early life when those experiences are not provided to support a healthy attachment. So what happens? We're here with Dr. Darsha Narvaez to discuss again what happens when the early care experiences don't provide that healthy attachment. Thank you for being with us again. You're welcome. Good to be with you, Mary. Yes. Thank you. So can you begin to explain to us just a little bit at what tends to go wrong if those early care experiences, those early experiences in life don't support attachment, which we have talked about before. Uh, We did talk about, yes, uh, some of the components of what secure attachment looks like and how things go well. Now we're going to at least uh, mention a few of the ways that things can go wrong. Hmm. So one of the key components of secure attachment, an indicator of good neurobiology, is to have a very responsive caregiver in early life. That means meeting the needs of the baby without letting that baby get distressed. So what happens when you have a caregiver who's not responsive, who lets baby the baby cry, who rejects any emotional outbursts or uh, pleas or communications even from the baby. And also I'd like to say also invasive, right? So it's one way or the other. Mm -hmm. So intrusive. So either not responding to the baby's needs or being overly intrusive. Right. So again, that's being Mm non-responsive, right? So you overdoing it or underdoing it. So it's a very, what we call cacostatic, over or underdone kind of caregiving. When, when you have that, then you're going to develop an insecure attachment style with that caregiver, which means your neurobiology isn't going to be very regulated for getting along with uh, people. You'll have this either, uh, you'll be easily terrorized by hmm. social life uh, because you'll either move into anxiety or uh, some kind of threat. Uh, and so you either shut down um, your thinking, your emotions, or your feeling. Uh, and um, Crittenden, um, Patricia Crittenden came up with uh, three ways to describe this. And one is you learn um, to habitually feel but not deal. Hmm. So that's when you feel anxious and you're just trying to get that caregiver to pay attention to you. So you're going to go into a, you know, a tantrum or, or some way of, you know, getting their attention so that you can get some needs met. And, you know, it's sure. just this huge emotional response and mm-hmm. that's and not very regulated hmm. except to control someone else. Uh, or you're going to deal but not feel, which means you kind of very get very cognitive and intellectualize your life, like a lot of us professors do, and you're not going to feel your emotions or be very connected to your heart sense, right? Or worse, you may na- neither feel nor deal. Hmm. You may not really be alive as, a, as an individual spirit. You have deadened yourself. Hmm. So it's like an internal numbing then of yeah, and dissociation of both maybe thoughts and feelings about experiences in life. Right. Yeah. So when caregivers are rejecting of, of the baby or young child's overtures for affection, that's when the child learns to shut down those feelings and build an avoidant attachment, meaning they learn to just stay at arm's length from other people because their neurobiology now is used to that. Hmm. Hmm. Or uh, when a ch- when a caregiver is inconsistent, sometimes responsive, sometimes not, sometimes intrusive and controlling, or other times neglectful, 
then the child starts to learn to use affect or emotions to control as a way to get attention and at least some of their needs met, right? So they, they don't think very well. They're not using their intellectual capacities as much as they're using their emotional kind of ways of manipulating. And you spell this out in talking about the result of that is this impaired homeostatic functioning, both from your hypothalamus organization and the limbic system, and being able to adapt to things in earlier life or later in life. Uh, I mean, those are pretty serious, right? But we also hear, you know, the argument that it's important to, you know, you want the child to become independent. <laughs> and so um, in in those first few years, you need to let them cry it out or experience an emotion so they can handle it on their own so that later on in life, they'll be financially independent adults. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's a delusion. <laughs> that's, again, forgetting that babies should be in the womb another 18 months. Yes. And during those 18 months, so many things are finishing themselves. So if you stress out those systems, they're going to be set to be easily stressed, easily stress reactive or threat reactive. You've now made them into a anxious being instead of providing for them. And so they become dependent, not independent. Mm. They're going to need something to rely on. Maybe it's drugs later, or maybe it's some cult, or maybe it's some ideology or something that's going to make them feel safe because they don't feel safe just being alive. Hmm. So it's the exact opposite then. So that's the right. idea of wanting an, an independent adult is a good one, right? But the way to go about getting there is to provide those experiences for healthy attachment rather than trying to create an independent infant, <laughs> right? That's right, yes. So it takes, you know, it's, it's a matter in those first six years to meet the needs of that child. Hmm in the ways that are appropriate for their developmental level. And that's, in babyhood, intense needs. They, I mean, leaving them alone is highly distressful to a baby. They expect to be on the baby, on the mother or father's or caregiver's body all the time to regulate their developing systems, right? So it's easy. There's so many ways you can stress a baby in the wrong direction. So that's why the evolved nest, which we've talked about before, is really critical for establishing a neurobiology that's going to last and uh, create well-being for that person into adulthood. So you also talk about in your research and in your work how those stressful responses then instigate the survival system, which then evokes several powerful emotions. I was wondering if you could take us through those. Um, and these emotions such as rage, fear, and panic, I mean, first of all, what are these? <laughs> uh, what do they look like? And how do they come about? So I guess if we could maybe just take the first one of even seeking right? Yeah. So so what is that? Well, let me just say in general about survival systems that we're born with these survival systems to keep us alive. And, how, and we share those with other mammals. So what does that look like? They're seeking. We need to explore environments to feel safe. Uh, and so seeking is this anticipatory euphoria kind of emotion system that Helps us go shopping, actually, <laughs> later. Uh, <laughs> I love that example. When you have, you really tap in, I think a lot of women can resonate with that. Let's go shopping. Can't wait to find a bargain. <laughs> yeah, and then you get it, and then you want, you know, that you've satisfied that, and you want to keep going and find another one, another right? So one. it's like, uh, and maybe, yeah. It's a great deal. <laughs> a great deal, and you can get stuck in that system if things don't go well in early hmm. life. Any of these systems, you can get stuck in them as a way that you 
make yourself feel safe because the rest of your, you know, the care system and the play system is, haven't been developed properly for you to feel okay just being or being with others. You have to do something. You have to go, you know, you're restless, restlessly anxious. And mm. that can be the seeking gets kind of set up. To, so it's um, always on. Yeah. In that sense, the seeking mode, yeah. you're always in the seeking mode. Yeah. yeah. How exhausting that must be well, hard. Yeah. <laughs> it is, right. Uh, and then there's the rage. Uh, that's the, uh, Rage is another emotion system that's been mapped in mammal, mammal brains. And that's uh, appropriate when we get frustrated and get, you know, tied up or something or wrapped up or something that it's good for an animal to be mad so they get out of it right to survive again mm -hmm. then there's it's a the type of energy yeah. right yeah That's it's a type there. of energy that when directed appropriately is is good uh and then there's fear the fear system uh, which is also something that helps keep us alive when it's appropriately in, deployed and then panic uh, the anxiousness that a child, a baby, will feel when the caregiver is not present. That's also designed to keep the caregiver present, right? The baby crying is a signal, panic, separation anxiety, help, save me, save me, right? Because if the caregiver doesn't come and the baby's crying like that, the predator can come mm. and snatch up that child, right? So that's how we evolved is to use signals socially to stay alive. And these are meant to be, in a way, social, but also environmental that's, emotion systems. That's interesting, mm -hmm. too. And when you talk about fear, I mean, it's just very mind-blowing that it's not passive. You know, so, so many times I think we think of fear because it results in an immobilization on our part, or, you know, we're stuck, we're frozen because we are so fearful. But it's not, right? It is really... Um, a, a very powerful response and can be used to uh, help us and to benefit us like all of these systems. But what you're saying is when the early, early experiences aren't provided, then we are kind of in these perpetual states. They're hyper aroused, right? Yeah, it's easy then. What, we've, what we do, what happens when a caregiver hasn't, uh, the early environment hasn't provided the kind of care that builds a good neurobiology is these more primitive systems take over easily. Hmm. So, when the stress response kicks in, it really floods your brain. It actually, you know, changes blood flow in your body. So it's, it mobilizes your muscles for running away, which is a good thing when the bear is after you or the tiger or whoever. But it shouldn't be happening every day when you see your mother or your <laughs> father oh, or your uh, sure. neighbor. You know, you shouldn't be panicking because it's going to put you in the wrong kind of mindset for being cooperative. Mm. Can't be cooperative when you're scared to death. Okay, and so and why is cooperate cooperation uh, so important? If we're having these systems that are hyper aroused, which are good for us, but yet they're out of whack, I guess is a simple way to put it. And so they're taking over all of our cognitive functioning and, and systems. And then we break down in terms of cooperation. So, I mean, I think you use an example here from Seinfeld that is really funny, but it, it, if you could speak a little bit to that, I think we all know that uh, sitcom. <laughs> yeah. So there's George Costanza is one of the main characters on the show. And he is notably uh, self-concerned and awfully uh, typically about money. <laughs> but in this uh, episode, he's in a daycare where his girlfriend, uh, I think it's her mother, owns the daycare or something like that. And she's, they're having a party and there's a clown. 
and um, food and young kids and her mother and grandmother are there. And George sees smoke coming from the kitchen and he thinks it's a fire. And so he starts yelling, fire, fire, and he runs out of the building. Hmm. But as he's doing so, he pushes the children out of the way, pushes the grandmother out of the way and throws her over. uh, Oh, my gosh. (laughs) And then he's outside. Well, it wasn't anything serious. It was something uh, inconsequential. But he then justifies it. You know, I thought it was fire. And then everyone knows his real character there. Mm. His real character is that he doesn't have self uh, social concern. He has self-concern. Mm. And when in the moments of, of threat, a person who's not been well cared for will d- display what he displayed, right? They'll suddenly go into this very self-centered mode. They can't oh, help it. Oh, interesting. Because that's what they've rehearsed so long ago and so for so long that they, they don't have a tend and befriend orientation, a social engagement orientation to, to threat. That communal orientation. Which is what in, in good developmental uh, neurobiology you would develop. You'd have a sense of, oh, I have to save the family. I have to save everybody. I'm, we're all in this together. You'd all automatically have that. The social engagement system of the vagus nerve, right, is about your first response when, when the vagus nerve is well set, uh, well established. Your first response is to turn to someone else for comfort, right? Hmm. You, you look to them, is there a fire? Hmm. No, no, that's not real fire. That's just, you know, smoke coming out of something, hmm. right? So... That's the first response when you're well-developed. And you can see this. Women tend to see you display this more. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. it's in part because we undercare for boys in particular. Boy babies, young boys need much more care and support and cuddling than we give them. And so their brains don't ever reach their fullest development on, on average mm. in our country anyway, in the U.S., uh, because we stress them out so much. And so that's not often the first instinct, like Mm. George chose, right? It's (laughs) the self-centeredness. And they have to perhaps learn later to control that self-centeredness with deliberative thinking, Mm -hmm. uh, deliberative, explicit training, self-training for it. Mm. But it's a lot of work. So you see that example, there's seeking, there's panic, uh, maybe not so much rage, but all of those are being activated. He loses insight of who's around him and even hurting other people. And I think it's interesting that you point out when these systems are activated, we focus on safety through power and control and rigid adherence to routines. Yeah. Right. So you've learned uh, some ways to feel safe. And it might be that you just shut down, you just get dissociated emotionally. And you just stop feeling, you go numb. Mm. That's one way to do it. And so you just go into shock. You look like you're in shock. And I'm, I'm, I'm afraid there's a lot of people that are in, living their lives mm. too much in that state now because mm-hmm. of how they've been shocked as young children. Mm-hmm. And it's not just, I mean, there's different time periods when you can be shocked and stressed. If you see a show that's really scary when you're too young, mm-hmm. you may forever, and Joanne Cantor has studied... Um, media effects. And she pointed out when she asked her college students um, whether they slept with a light on at night, a lot of them had their hands up. And she said, why is that? Well, college students. These are college students, yes. (laughs) And they pointed to a movie they saw when they were too young to see it. It scared them to death. 
Of course, having a light on at night is terrible because it, uh, uh, it breeds cancer because you need darkness to clean up cancer cells at night. Mm-hmm. But uh, And so there's ways to traumatize kids all along through childhood. Hmm. And and so what, what we're talking about here is mostly in early babyhood, the survival systems and how they can be set improperly to take over your brain so easily because of non-responsive care. But trauma later can also do this. So PTSD is a way to move back into those survival systems and you're panicking, you're scared, you're... Um, Maybe you're seeking to, you're trying to feel safe again, whatever it is that works, or rage, even going into a rage and shooting people, right? Mm. So, mm. yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you've talked about in other places in your work too how when those systems aren't developed properly in life, and then you have, uh, unfortunately, you have PTSD because of some other trauma, then when someone is expressing or experiencing some type of stress, then you can then go into a stressful mode as well. Rather than having an empathic response to them, their experience is so stressful that you're unable to deal, right? Unable to process and integrate. And it's also a breakdown, again, in that companionship attachment um, and that communal orientation, right? Brilliant. Yes. Good point. Thank you. So it's part of a larger um, society then, too. Not only do we have that breakdown because of the early experience, but then those people whom we turn to, um, maybe for need, right, are unable to help us. (laughs) Yeah. So so it it degrades the whole society. Yes. Yes, exactly. So... All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Narvaez, for enlightening us on the consequences and the effects of what happens when the um, early experiences in life aren't supportive of a proper and healthy attachment, and hopefully enlightening all of us on some of the effects and what we can do in order to ameliorate and curb those responses. Thank you so much. Thank you.